Martin Walker is one of the most listened to shows on binge reading in all time, so we're delighted to have him back discussing his latest book, To Kill a Troubadour, number 15 in the Bruno Perigord Police Chief series. Highly popular all over the place, particularly in Germany. When a musician's new song hits a political nerve, he finds himself in the crosshairs of Spanish nationalist ire, and it's up to Bruno to track down the extremists who seem to be ready to take deadly measures in another delightful instalment of the internationally acclaimed series featuring Bruno, Chief of Police. But now, here's Martin. Welcome back, Martin. It's so good to have you on the show again. It's good to be back with you, Jenny. Look, we're talking about to Kill a Troubadour, which is number 15 in your Perigord Bruno, the Police Chief series. And I particularly yeah. loved this one because you have such an interesting mix of things going on in the story. It's a combination yeah. of the French provincial life that's so popular with your readers, but there is also that edge of both history and contemporary politics in it. So we've got Russian cyber attacks, we've got some of the French older history, medieval history coming into it. But I wondered with the cyber attack part of it in particular, did your previous contacts, because we know from your earlier podcast interview with us that you have had a very illustrious career as a diplomatic correspondent for top newspapers. Did those diplomatic contacts and the people that you met over that period of your life help with your research on the cyber attack aspects of this book? Yes, very much so. I mean, partly because I, I I have various old old contacts who are with offices like GCHQ in Britain and the NSA in America. I even gave a lecture at the NSA at one point on um, on international politics. And so I, I keep in touch with old chums, like I try and keep in touch with my old friends in Moscow some of whom have now left because of opposition to the war in Ukraine. But yeah, I mean, the, if, I mean, I was most of my life I was in journalism. And so you meet an awful lot of interesting characters around the world through journalism. And the other thing is that the old Fleet Street motto holds good. Expert knowledge is just a phone call away. <laughs> That's great. Yes. So you've got the rise of right-wing extremism as an inherent part of this story. But also yeah. there is the medieval aspect with the Occitan culture coming back into being being promoted anyway by various interest groups. And one of the key characters in that right-wing extremism is this woman, Africa, who appears right through the story, a mysterious figure. And we just had a little bit of a conversation off camera because the edition that I read of your book didn't have an author acknowledgement section. And I was very curious as to whether Africa was a real person or entirely made up. And we've just had a little chat about that off air and you've explained that she is definitely a real person. So tell us about her role in the story and also what she actually achieved in real life. Well, the, there was a woman called Africa de los Reyes who was uh, a Spanish communist during the Spanish Civil War, born to a quite a wealthy, prosperous family. And uh, she, uh, uh, at the end of the war, when the Republican left-wing side was defeated and Franco took over, she uh, was steered back, back to Moscow by uh, the NKVD uh, figure there, which is the modern KGB, if you like. And she became a full-time KGB official and had an extraordinary career. She was used, she was used by the Red Army in World War II 
to uh, coordinate partisan activity around the uh, the Blue Division, which was the Spanish division of volunteers that Franco sent to the Eastern Front to fight on the side of the Nazis. She uh, So she had a distinguished career with that. She got several medals for it. She then went off to uh, South America, where she was the person who warned the Russians that the Bay of Pigs invasion was to be launched in 61. She was told to marry the uh, the head of the KGB in South America, based in Argentina. And he was a Yugoslav. And of course, the Yugoslavs were starting to come under considerable suspicion. And uh, so whether she actually killed him or arranged for him to be killed, we're not sure. But she went back to Moscow and she then became the, the head of the training division for Spanish speakers for the KGB. She had daughter also called Africa and so for this case of this novel I have her having a granddaughter as well. Now I, I've been to the grave of this woman in, in Moscow and she died at about the same time as Kim Philby so I was really into graves at this point and um, I always thought she made a fascinating character and because she's real and because she had this she had this sort of Spanish connection as well as the as well as her Russian loyalties her Soviet loyalties we also know that the Russian uh, cyber attack units uh, based in Himki just outside Moscow were very much involved in trying to divide the French and the Spaniards over the whole Catalan business. There was a lot of, when Catalan was trying to get its independence, there was a lot of, lot of support in France because there's a linguistic and cultural connection between the Catalans and this part of France where I am now, Occitanie, which is southwestern France. The languages of the old Occitan, which is what some of my neighbours still speak, and of Catalan are very, very close together. And the cultural connections are even closer. So the way in which the Russians were trying to manipulate this with uh, with their little cyber operations was something that struck me as, as worthy of, uh, of bringing into the novel. And I had great fun doing this, but uh, I had even more fun learning more and more about this whole Occitan tradition and the way in which most of the kind of the Renaissance that we had in Western Europe in the uh, late 11th and 12th and 13th centuries came to us through uh, the Spanish, through Spain, and largely from the Muslims, who of course were occupying much of Spain at this point. One of the key figures in all of this was a man, was the Duke William of Aquitaine, who was the first troubadour. And he was the grandfather of the great Eleanor of Aquitaine, the most wonderful woman in history, in my view, married to a king of France, who she found pretty useless, and a king of England, who she thought was terrific, until he put her in prison. She was the mother of Richard the Lionheart, and Richard Lionheart used to write poetry in Occitan. And indeed, a few years ago, Brian Ferry made a recording of, of Richard's famous poem, Here I in Prison Lie, and it's which, which he wrote in Occitan. So I, I sort of began this sort of burst of research into the origins of Occitan and just how much we learned from the Moors who were occupying Spain at this time. Now, it's not just things like words. So, for example, the French word for a shirt, chemise, it comes from camisa, which is the Moorish word for a shirt, uh, but also the musical instruments that we had from the, from the, the lute to the flute came directly from the Spaniards. Much of the music that, that became of the, the, the Occitan troubadour tradition and the, the verse forms came from the Arab tradition. And I just, I just sort of 
plunged like a diver into this and began listening to Occitan music, getting to know people involved in the Occitan culture and so on. And I thought, why has nobody written about this before in a popular novel? So I had... I, I I do have a whale of a time sometimes when I'm when I'm writing the, when I'm writing this stuff. Yes. So did Eleanor and William did they actually speak Occitan or was it more? Yes. A, they did. Yeah. Yeah. They spoke. Uh, Eleanor was bilingual in Occitan and in a kind of a, a Poitiers version of Occitan, but she also spoke uh, very good Latin and uh, she could get by in high French because she was living in Paris when she was married to the king. She never got to speak English, but that didn't matter because her husband, King Henry II of England, he spoke uh, he spoke Norman French and uh, he could get by in Occitan too. One of the great things about this combination of Eleanor uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine and her husband, King Henry II of England, was that they were the people who really brought us the whole legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Geoffrey of Monmouth, whose initial stories of King Arthur uh, when were being read aloud at the court of Henry, was uh, embellished by people like Chrétien de Troyes, who was brought aboard by Eleanor, people like Wache, who was a Breton poet. And so many of the legends, like, for example, Tristan and Isild, come into the uh, King Arthur tales, and the round table come into King Arthur's tales absolutely through Eleanor of Aquitaine. So what you have is this extraordinary combination, a part of this flowering of European culture. The music, the verse forms are coming from are coming from the Moors and through Spain. The story comes from Wales and England, and it's embellished and widened by Eleanor and Occitani. And for example, Wagner would never have had his opera Parsifal had it not been for the way Eleanor brought the Percival legend and the Holy Grail legend into the right Knights of the Round Table. That's amazing. And I gather that also it was partly because Duke William, her, her grandfather, was imprisoned at one stage during one of the Crusades and became very familiar with the Islam culture during that experience in the Crusades. Is that also one of the little parts of the jigsaw puzzle? Indeed. And his granddaughter, young Eleanor, was brought up in a castle at Bordeaux where King William, by this time he'd got himself out, he had his own Moorish prisoners there who were waiting for ransom. So little Eleanor's little girl was listening to their music, listening to their poetry, listening to them talk. I mean, the, the cross-fertilization of cultures across the Pyrenees between, uh, between Aquitaine and Catalonia and, and Moorish Spain was extremely powerful. That's wonderful. Um, perhaps hopping to another very strong theme in your books, all of them, is food. And in this one, we get quite a lot of references to food. We get Bruno's cooking, but we also get, I was. I, I thought this was great because I think I read it around about the time of the Platinum Jubilee. We get Queen Elizabeth's wedding breakfast, uh, a dish called Coronation Chicken Dish. And I thought, once again, what a fantastic sense you have of, <laughs> of kind of being on the mark with some of these things. I'd never realised that this dish existed until I read your book. 
Well, it's true, yes. And my mum used to make coronation chicken. It's a very nice kind of chicken salad dish with a little bit of curry in it. And I became very fond of it, you know, as you as you always do of your mum's cooking. And I thought I thought I'd bring this one in. But I also have great fun with one of the uh, with uh, Mamou, one of the Arabs who is a, a lives in Saint Denis, is a friend of Bruno's. He's the math teacher at the local school, and he is the master of the meshui. And the meshui is when you roast a whole lamb, and he has his own little array of spices and so on and Bruno is very much the the loyal deputy helping him sort of put together the spice the spices and to and to roast the lamb but I mean that's what we do at the local tennis club we regularly have a meshui when we do roast a whole lamb and there is a an Arab chap who comes along who's whose uh, who's son I know because he runs he runs one of the local cafes and he's played very played rugby very well for our local team and uh, this is how he makes his most roast lamb for us. You've got an uh, an, uh, award-winning cookbook that has done very well in Germany. I'm not at at all clear whether any of your cookbooks have yet been published in English, but I gather you've also got a new one out called Bruno's Garden Cookbook. Yeah, well, that that's also won um, a prize. It's won the prize from Gourmet International, um, and it's a prize for the world's best French cookbook. And oh my, gosh. my French friends get. My my French friends get very surprised and shocked when they hear that uh, a bloody Brit has won uh, has won this prize. What I should say, and it's coming out in English uh, in the US and the UK next year, so it'll be coming out to Australia and New Zealand as well. And they, what's coming out is a composite of the two cookbooks. Uh, but I have to say that uh, I could not begin to do all that without my wife, Julia, who is uh, a very, very good food writer. She wrote for the Washington Post, for the Sunday Times and Observer and the Mail on Sunday in Britain. And she now uh, writes a weekly food column on Substack. Julia Watson is her name, and I recommend you to go to substack.com and look up her food stuff. But Julia, I mean, I I have to cook myself every recipe that you will find in a Bruno novel, but with Julia at my shoulder saying, you know, not quite so much garlic, a bit more salt and so on. And so, uh, yes, it's it's really a family operation. Julia and I are uh, doing doing the cookbooks. Fantastic. And when it's called the garden cookbook, does that mean that you're also growing quite a bit of produce at home as well? Absolutely. We, we live on our garden all summer long. So we've got, uh, you know, we, we, we have the radishes coming in the springtime and then the first of the strawberries. Strawberries go on until uh, until until just about now. They're coming to an end. We've got we've got lots of tomatoes of various kinds. We've got uh, our onions, our our garlic, our potatoes, our uh, cucumbers, leeks, um, and of course we have our own chickens, and uh, so and we have our fruit trees. Now, the, one of the tragedies is that the peach tree got hit by the very hard frosts that we had earlier this year, and so my peach tree has sadly died. But I'm still getting apples and pears, and uh, the garden is just just a delight because half of it is flowers, and the other half is food and vegetables and fruit. Gorgeous, gorgeous. So we are coming to the end of our time because these are shorter little chats, but we talked last time in December 2019. And so that was practically, I can't quite remember back now, but we hardly had an, uh, any pandemic at that point. I think it was just starting to come in. Was it February 2020? We started to get aware of it. I think it yeah. was. Yeah. So we just, we hardly knew that was on the horizon when we last talked. And you did have a very international life moving around during 
book tours in Germany and things. How have you managed over the last couple of years and how has it affected you? Well, I myself caught COVID uh, very mildly after that, after Christmas in uh, with the, with our with our large family in London, and so I had to delay my return to. Uh, to I was flying back to Florida, where I, I also had a book tour. That the book tour there went ahead, lecture tour there went ahead, and I was then came back to a France under complete lockdown. You had to sort of sign a declaration if you're just going out to the shops or whatever. I got an awful lot of extra work done, so I. I've got a new book coming out. I've got a, a collection of short stories. Bruno's short stories has just come out. This To Kill a Troubadour was written. Most of the books that will come out next year uh, was written. And I've got a new book coming out called Bruno's Perigord. It's coming out in German, but it's really about the history, the traditions, the culture, and so on of the, uh, of the region. So, I mean, for me, COVID meant I could do a lot of work. That was fa- <laughs> so mainly based in France for right through that time. I was. Two of my German book tours in May of 2020 and in May of 2021 were cancelled, but I did a May book tour this year, and I did part of a book tour. I did my October book tour last year, So, and I also managed to get back to the States again earlier this year. It hasn't been too bad in interrupting things, and I had a very nice Christmas and Easter in London, but we're just sort of, and I'm now four times vaccinated with booster and super booster, so... (laughs) Yeah. Fingers crossed, but who knows where the monkeypox is going and so on. Yeah. I listened to a really good Aussie podcast on COVID called Coronacast with a Scottish doctor, Norman Swan, and uh, they had a break for about a month and they've just come back. And their cheerful news is that the vaccinations aren't that effective about against the new you know, versions, particularly BA5, which is the one that's circulating here now. So even though I'm super vexed as well, but it's they're saying you can't really take too much for granted nevertheless. So yeah, so it's all a whole new world really, isn't it? Well, in some way, it's back to the Middle Ages with yeah. a sense of plague yeah. and shock and surprise, just as we're back in the Cold War with Putin and uh, oh, I know. With, with Ukraine. Yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing. Anyway, Marta, look, it's been so good to have you with us again tonight. And I'm just really looking forward to the next Bruno. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we're, we're disputing the title at the moment. I was, uh, my original title for it was The Battle for Salah. Now we're thinking about the castle under siege or something like that. We will see how it goes. Can you give any hint of what the theme is going to be? Yeah, well, it be- yes. I mean, near here at a place called Dom, it's kind of an open secret in this region, is the main French electronic intelligence and surveillance headquarters. And I've you know, come across one or two people who are sort of involved in it. So we start off with a recreation of the battle to liberate the town of Salah in the year 1370, to liberate it from the English. And they do a reenactment of the battle. But at the end of it, the hero who's meant to be playing the role of the French Marshal Bertrand de Guesclin is found lying apparently dead of a sword thrust in the middle of the old town square. And it turns out he is one of the big cheeses at this super secret electronic listening place. And off we go. You've got a great gift for, you know, putting together medieval history and very much up to date contemporary events. It's really a great combination. So congratulations on that. 
Thank you very much indeed. I enjoy doing it. So I've got a dirty little secret, which I haven't even talked about because it's just too funny, but I'm I'm on Ancestry.com. I've done a bit of genealogy with my family. I'm, I'm not any sort of expert, but I got dragged into doing a 2016 family reunion, which resulted in us putting together this big family tree. And so online, I have now been connected by DNA right back to Eleanor of Aquitaine. She is supposedly my... Great grandmother, twenty nine generations back. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so which daughter? Do, um, do you know which daughter it went through? I oh, look, I've got it all written down, but I haven't looked at it for a while. But I honestly have never really had the time to check out how absolutely valid this is. But it's a, what they call a gateway ancestor. I don't know if you've heard of this concept. Yeah. I never had. Yeah. I just got approached yeah. by email from somebody in Perth saying, I believe we're related and would you like to know that we're we're knocked into the Plantagenet line? And I said, oh, yes, that <laughs> sounds interesting. Well, it, it's a grandmother on my maternal side, my mother's side. My mother is English. She was born and raised yeah. in Oxford and she married a Kiwi after the war. And that grandmother, who is a 19th century grandmother, it's through her. The whole line just goes back directly through her in one kind of swathe. So, and I just can't well, honestly remember quite how it goes. But the first about half a dozen generations are aristocrats and then they just dwindle off into merchants and things, you know, that, that nobody yeah. famous for the next, uh, you know, three or 400 years. So, well, yeah. They reckon more than half the population of the British Isles is descended yep. in some in some way from King uh, King Edward III, who really put himself about. And of course, Henry II, Eleanor's husband, was even more of a lively lad. I mean, he was simply famous for he could never stop overnight at a win at an inn without tumbling all the chambermaids. It was yeah. Uh, yeah. a bit like Henry IV of France, a real father of yeah. his people. Yeah. So, you know, I have heard that half the world has got Plantagenet genes. Yes, that. But listen, I tell you, I interviewed Blanche de Blanche Del Puget, now Rob Bob Hawke's second wife, and I don't mm -hmm. know if, she, if you know that she's done a historical. It's a five book series on Henry the Second and that first generation, Henry the Second. Well, and actually, and the sons and Eleanor, but it finishes with that first generation. It doesn't attempt to go any further. But she has absolutely been fascinated by the Plantagenets for a long time, and yeah. she was very interesting talking about the Henry the Second's achievements in getting basically the whole administrative system in Britain set up. Even today, you know, we're benefiting from things that Henry II did. She was quite interesting oh, yeah. talking about that side of it. The assize courts and so on. But a lot of that he managed to get through Thomas a. Beckett, whom he later had killed, of course. Yeah, yeah. And Beckett features very prominently in her stories. Just down the road from me, Jenny, is literally within walking distance, is the 12th century chapel of St. Martin, which was the, a church that the Pope required that King Henry build in penance for the murder of Archbishop Thomas a. Beckett. And he had to build three churches, two in England and one in his lands in France. And it's just down the road from me. Yeah. And it's built on the site of an old Roman temple. I mean, the history here just goes rolling on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Martin. Good talking to you again. Yes, well. bye. Thank you. Same to you. Bye. -bye. bye.